You are listening to UBC Waco Podcast. <laughs> are you recording? Yeah. Oh, okay. We can use that as just a scratch track for now. Good morning. Welcome to UBC. If you're here all the time, we're glad you're here. If you're here for the first time, we're glad you're here. A um, couple of things. Numero uno. This is the service where I offer the annual uh, beatitude from the book of Josh, where I say, blessed are those of you who are stuck in Waco for spring break, for you have a real job. Um, or I say, or you're poor, in which case you are actually blessed by Jesus, at least in the Sermon on the Plain. So it's a win-win. Um, I should also apologize for my attire, which is I'm a step below what I usually do, even for me. Uh, I had one rule in my 15 years here, which is I would never wear sports paraphernalia on the, in the pulpit. And uh, I, I, I don't know if this qualifies or not. I, of course, I'm from Wisconsin. I love the. But um, let's celebrate this. Uh, Sikkim, uh, conference champions. And because the favor of the Lord rests upon me, so too Wisconsin winner lose today is also a conference winner. So it looks like it's a good time to be Josh Carney. Um, okay, for some time now, emotionally, I have been on the precipice of last things. Um, and this has been a very fruitful and, and exciting time in my life. And uh, for example, uh, we had our love, love feast. We have two of these a year, Thanksgiving and, and Valentine's Day for some reason. And um, I, um, I was m- moving through the evening with a gratitude that I've been attentive to that I haven't um, felt in 15 years because it's a, it's a perspective I have now and will never have again. And um, that uh, particular Sunday, Tof was gone, so he normally handles large events. He commissioned to be a point person and, and put together a great volunteer team of Ben and Craig and Taylor. Thank you so much, the three of you. And, um, but nonetheless, the evening was wrapping up. This space was completely cleared. We had the Super Bowl on, uh, the Jumbotron behind me. It was the halftime show. It was a very 90s rockin' vibe in here. And um, we're pretty much done at this point. I'm in the backside, and I'm wiping down a counter in my emotional space, knowing at this point, even though the announcement is not public, that things are winding down and, and paying attention and feeling my feelings, uh, which is good work for me. Um, and um, I, I had this flashback to this moment as a kid where I watched the final episode of Cheers and suddenly I saw Sam Malone wiping down the bar and he stepped out from behind and he walks over, if you remember, he straightens a picture. He tells a would-be customer that in fact they are closed and then, um, and then Sam pauses by the lights. He looks over his shoulder at the bar and drinks deeply from what's there. And it was very similar for me. I, I wiped off the counter and I, um, I walked over to the lights and then before I shut them off, I began remembering that space and, and things that had happened in there. Um, and so again, I, I've been in this emotional space of these are my lasts. And so I got to be thinking about these next couple of weeks and I thought, what does a guy do with the three last sermons he gets to preach in this space as, as pastor? Um, it is a first Sunday of Lent, which is not theologically insignificant for how we conceive of ourselves theologically and otherwise throughout the year. And so there's that, and there's all the normal liturgical pieces that are in play. But because it's a first Sunday, there's this overlap in which we will commune together. And normally we would do that, have done that already, but I asked Jamie to push it back because this is the last time I also get to do this with you as a pastor. And so I wanted, among other things, to talk about this. Um, I think we are theologically confused about communion as Baptists. Um, Is it a remember thing? Is it a salvation thing? Is Jesus' presence in the elements? Is Jesus' presence in the elements before we ingest the elements or after they're inside of our bodies? Should we burn someone at the stake if they get any of those answers wrong? I say that in jest, but two of the great Protestant reformers in our short history, Ulrich Zwingli and Martin Luther, broke fellowship because they couldn't agree about this. 
Baptists are, of course, free church folks, which means that um, we use bread and juice or crackers and juice. We don't drink alcohol, at least not on Sunday mornings. Um, our loosey-goosey attitude towards the elements has yielded some interesting results. Some of you have reported to me that you use pizza and beer. Uh, some of you, perhaps in the desperate stages of having young children, have said you've done communion with Kool-Aid and, and goldfish. Some of you have gotten so lazy during the pandemic that when we were on TV, you would report to me that, well, you forgot it was Communion Sunday, and then you sat down in your couch, and you negotiated what the elements could be till you settled on the cup of coffee in your hand and whatever carbohydrate was left on the coffee table by your children from the night before. Does any of that matter? Did you know that the only place in your Bibles that you will find the Sermon on the Mount is Matthew? The only place you'll hear a story about a mysterious naked guy running away from Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane is in Mark. Did you know that the only places you can read about the prodigal son or the good Samaritan are in Luke? And did you know that in John? Well, you can kind of take your pick because he was doing his own thing. N.T. Wright has said that the Gospels are actually passion narratives with long introductions. And, and I think that works in part because the one thing that they all share in common is that the trial, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Resurrection, of course, depending on how you look at Mark. Um, and aside from John the Baptist and a few other details, they do all hold one story in common. In all four Gospels, Jesus feeds the 5,000. Isn't that interesting? Why is it that when all the Jesus footage was in the editing room, all four Gospel authors said, oh, this is one story we have to, to tell? I mean, is it, is it anybody's favorite miracle story? I don't think it's the most artistic. I don't think it's the most unique. Just one chapter later, Jesus is going to feed 4,000. So I wonder, why does it figure so prominently in our scriptures. Um, I would like to frame this by sharing a few of weaknesses of my weaknesses with you to better understand the predicament that um, Jesus and I think I find myself in. I have space issues. So for example, in the evenings, when I sit down on a couch, if there are toys on the floor, my feng shui or whatever is ruined, I can't do it, like, right? I have to get up and, and fix that. Uh, we have this foyer, foyer you call it, it's where our kids are supposed to hang their, their bags from school. What they do is they throw those on the floor, though, and they take off their shoes and socks and, like, almost artistically disperse them in weird places. And then, uh, but the last year and a half, it, it's been masks. And I walk in sometimes, and I look at this, and I, like, hyperventilate. And it's not just my house space. Uh, I started my midlife crisis at 35 and purchased a scooter uh, instead of a Corvette. And, and, and I, um, after I started driving, I noticed, for safety reasons, obviously, I became even more acutely aware of where cars are around me. Um, I, uh, I've never been in an accident in my life where my vehicle hit another vehicle. Um, but it's not because I'm a great driver. I've run red lights. I've missed stop signs. It's because the, what I do do is I always know where everybody is around me because I don't like that. If somebody's behind me, I'll speed up or I'll slow down. My number one goal is get away from the other cars. Lastly, I, I just don't like to be close to people. You know, if I never got another hug, that again, that'd be fine. Uh, you know, they say that babies need to be swaddled and wrapped for touchy-feely emotional development stuff. Not me. My mom gave me a blanket and a bottle of Mountain Dew, and I was fine. Um, when we go to a movie and a friend suggests, well, let's climb over the people and get to the middle so we have really good seats, and I'm like, why don't we descend all the way into hell? You know, I just can't do that. I have heat issues. Of course, nobody likes Texas in August, but for example, if I walk outside in April and it's 80 degrees, I begin to ponder what kind of sin is in my life that brought this down on me. And I have hangry issues. So taken together, bear this in mind, my wife, who is wonderful and constantly creating memorable moments for our family and our children, 
um, and I, we very much differ on what a good social experience is. Um, if Waco is putting on an event, it doesn't matter if it's a parade or fireworks or art on the chalk night or, uh, I don't know, fire truck night, the carnies are, are going to go. We're going to support the community. I, on the other hand, would be quite content to like sit on the couch with an old fashioned and watch Netflix, but I never win this fight. So a few years ago, word got out that Waco was inviting all of the food trucks, I don't know, I, I guess in the world or something, for this showdown in Waco. And um, of course my wife says we're going and it's April in Texas, so it's 105 degrees and we don't eat because we're going there to eat, right? So we arrive with empty stomachs and, and we get there. And let me show you this picture I took with my drone. Oh, I'm sorry, that's New Delhi. I get the experiences mixed up. Uh, here's the actual picture. Uh, so we get there and I say, oh, look, honey, everybody from McClellan County is here. It's great. And of course, uh, we don't get any food because the trucks are running out of food and the lines are way too long. And uh, there are crowds and there's temperatures and I'm hangry or the Holy Trinity of Satan himself is in full effect. And the only place we can get food we settle on is, is like a hot dog stand. And it's straight out of what you get from the supermarket, right? It's a, they've opened up the, the buns and the, the, the hot dogs they put together and they, it's like actual packets of ketchup and relish. But because they put like paprika on it, they charge you $9, right? So now I'm angry about this too. And it's in this moment that I think about the miracle, the feeding of 5,000, it dawns on me. The real miracle is that nobody was killed that day. It must have been difficult. Jesus is teaching all day. The weather's likely hot. They're in a deserted place. There are 5,000 of them. Uh, there are so many interesting things to observe in this miracle story. Let's begin with the typological reflections. 14.5, the disciples refer to the location as a deserted place. If you look in the Septuagint, this is the same word that's used for the wilderness, which is the theological cue. And how did God feed the people of Israel in the wilderness last time they were there? With manna from heaven. And who is it that led the people of Israel when they crossed the wilderness? It was Moses, who interestingly is the author of the five books of the Pentateuch, which equals the number of loaves of bread. And what shall we say about two fish? only that there are two witnesses that pop up from time to time in the scriptures who we think are Elijah and Moses because they're representative of the law and the prophets. And since we are playing the numbers game, it's also worth noting that there are 12 baskets left over, which I won't even explain that because it's so obvious, but this number represents the abundance and restoration of God that God intends to provide for his people in the person of Jesus. So what you have here is this very on the nose, Jesus leading this new Exodus theme going on in Matthew. I always think, though, that the more interesting question is the why of the miracle. Um, and the question prior to this, though, is the how. How did God do this miracle? I will tell you this. I grew up in a charismatic home. Uh, in the South, it's pretty much synonymous with Pentecostal. It was a household full of miracle stories. I've heard repeatedly my mom tell the story about a tornado that came, and you could see the direct line both before and after our house, but somehow I had missed it. I was told a story about my parents giving away their last dollar and coming home in the 1980s, mind you, before uh, uh, inflation, or at least inflation brings forward, and, and they found a manila envelope in their mailbox with $4,000. A passenger van decimated, but my sister and mom escaped unscathed. My dad was a pilot, and before I was born, was in the sky in tow with my mom and my older brother and sister, and my dad's instruments failed. All he had was his radio. There was a treacherous storm. He couldn't see anything. For hours, he played back and forth communication with the tower until finally his gas tank demanded that he emerge below the clouds and take a guess. And when he did, he came out right above the runway. I grew up in a home where walking on water and turning water to wine and, and cleansing the lepers was 
kind of a supernatural assumption. In our household, the burden of proof was on the Enlightenment, and its insistence that Jesus didn't do these things. That Jesus fed 5,000 with the same kind of supernatural powers that brought down manna from heaven was not even his best miracle. That was the warm-up stuff. God was doing this to get ready for Lazarus and eventually Jesus. For a God who created ex nihilo, the Latin for out of nothing, to bring down bread from a mysterious, endless supply of ciabatta seemed like child's play. Eventually, though, I discovered not everybody saw it this way. I began reading religious scholarship about various texts in college and then after. And for some, this miracle, which is so often called the feeding of the 5,000, should have come with a subtitle, which is the miracle of sharing. Let me read you this lengthy uh, quote from Barbara Brown Taylor. Some of the crowd must have laughed out loud, while some of them were mystified and still others were embarrassed for Jesus, that he should have promised so much with so little deliver. But I wonder if some of them were not touched too, touched by the way the disciples handed over all that they had and touched by Jesus' simple confidence that it would be enough. I wonder if they did not look at this small basket of food going around them and feel the food hidden in their own pockets and began, that began to burn holes in them. Because, you know, they had some, a bit of lamb wrapped in a grape leaf, a few raisins, a chunk of bread left over from breakfast, and it might have worked too. They might have been able to keep their own food for themselves. The bread basket had not come around full of scraps. Everyone so careful not to break off too much. Everyone wanting Jesus' crazy idea to work so much that they carefully, very secretly, uh, they all began to put their own bread in the basket, reaching in as if they were taking some and some out and leaving some behind instead, so that the meal grew and grew, so that when the disciples collected the broken pieces at the end, they stared in amazement at the 12 baskets full of bread. Wheat bread, sourdough, pumpernickel, rye, raisin bread, pita bread, bagels, maybe even an oat bran muffin or two. Every kind of bread you can think of, the leftovers from a meal of for 5,000 that started off with five blessed and broken loaves. Uh, hopefully the hundreds of times I have quoted Barbara Brown Taylor is proof enough that I think the world of her writing and her preaching, and even her theology. But I have to admit, I kind of rolled my eyes when I read this one. Oh, look, another liberal Protestant here to demythologize Jesus for us. But I began to poke around, and what I found out is that Barbara Brown Taylor is not alone. A lot of my theological superheroes agreed with her. The miracle might indeed have been the sharing, the rich giving to the poor, everyone exercising care and restraint. The annoying truth is that the how of the miracle will remain a mystery to us, so we are left with the why of the miracle. Here again, the Bible has us thinking about food, and not just any food, bread, a substance that in a few chapters will become the official symbol of Jesus. You know, the Catholics have, of course, seven sacraments. We have two, we parse the word all the way down to ordinances. And um, I have always wondered how church history got to two or seven. Asked differently, what about the things that didn't make it in? For example, foot washing. Seems to fare pretty prominently in John's gospel. Or There's so many wonderful stories that utilize the creative elements of God's universe. And, and I wondered about their inclusion in this list. Why aren't we encouraged to stack stones and make our own Ebenezers? Or why don't we have our own ceremonies of wild dancing, like when the Ark of the Covenant returned to Israel? Who decided which sacraments mediate sanctifying grace in which do not. I'll say this, the older I get, the more bread makes sense to me. As you know, one of my alter egos over the years was Old MacDonald. 
have such, I've given a lot of thought to food as a philosophical concept, why we consume it as a culture, its function. Uh, a few years back, I watched Michael Pollan's four-part series on Netflix called Cooked. Um, the show is laid out this way. Pollan uses the four episodes in which he investigates cooking methods done by either earth, wind, fire, or water. I'd like to show you a clip from the conclusion of the air episode in which he learns to bake a loaf of bread. Uh, pay attention to the language he uses. Also, I should say this, I suppose for reasons that are called pirating, I could not uh, record it in any meaningful way, so I had to use my iPhone. It sounds a little chippy and the quality is low, but you know, YOLO, I'm, re I'm leaving anyways. What else am I gonna do? So, let's watch this. And hijack them in a way, so they go to us. And that's really what bread uh, allows us to do. And actually, one of the things that was a pleasant surprise to me was that it isn't rocket science, and you can do it by feel. And that was very liberating to learn that. And sometimes it's better than other times. Sometimes you get a great oven spring, and you're, you feel like, God, I really know what I'm doing. And other times it's kind of flat, and you don't exactly know what went wrong. ear. That's a good thing to have a pronounced ear on a loaf of bread. Mm, I would do it just for the smell. <laughs> I began feeling daunted and I ended feeling confident and an enormous sense of uh, satisfaction. I mean, I think of all the things I learned how to make, uh, making a decent loaf of bread has been the most satisfying. alchemy, right? I mean, it's transformation. But bread is the greatest alchemy of all. Take a small amount of food and turn it into a large amount of food that can feed a lot of people. Out of thin air. Literally, out of thin air. The word spirit, you know, comes from wind. It comes from air. And it's no accident. The spiritual dimension is the one that you can't really grab hold of. It is like the breeze. Exactly what we need to make this wonderful food is democratically available to everybody in the air. It really is a miracle. I do think bread is spiritual. I do think this process of moving from dying seed to germination to sprouting plant to harvest to transformation to consumption is the pattern of death giving way to new life. And so as we stare, for example, at Maslow's hierarchy of need, yes, of course, Jesus is addressing 
our initial physiological concern, but bread has this unique ability, I think, to move all the way up the chart to self-actualization on off the chart into the life of Christ. I want to uh, walk you through a course of scriptures, which is an attempt to take my best guess at answering this question, the why of the miracle. When God began his chess game with humanity, he began his first move with Abraham. And there's this interesting story at the beginning in which these strange three visitors just show up. And in 18.5, it says, let me get you something to eat so you can be refreshed and then go on your way now that you have come to your servant. And then there's Psalm 23.5, you prepare a table before me in the presence of your enemies. And then there's Song of Solomon 2.4, let him lead to the banquet hall and let his banner over me be love. Isaiah 25.6, on the mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best meats, the finest wines. John 2, 2 through 3, you remember this miracle? Jesus and the disciples had been invited to the wedding, and when the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, uh, they have no more wine. Matthew 22, 2, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding feast or a wedding banquet for his son. Revelation 19, 9, the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the lamb's wedding banquet. God has been in the partying business from beginning to the end. Uh, years ago, I had this game on my phone called Jewel Mania. Uh, it was this very complex, sophisticated game where the way you would win is by lining up three jewels of the same color. But wait, there's more. If you could do four, you get like a laser blaster beam, which would knock out more jewels. If you could do five in a row at a right angle, you got a bomb. If you combine a laser and a bomb, it would wipe out half the screen. Or you got a diamond, which you could exchange for a colored jewel that would get rid of all the simultaneous colored jewels. It's very complex. I would play this, and it was like going to a casino. The noises, the colors, it got to me. It worked. The endorphins were running in high. And then October rolled around, and they released Halloween edition Jewel Mania. And if that wasn't enough, two months later, we had Jewel Mania Christmas, and my head almost exploded. Then one day after I completed, like, level 427, I was Googling Jewel Mania, and a discussion forum came up. And after reading this, I learned that the last level of Jewel Mania continued out into the future where the creators of the game would just keep making new old jewel level manias. In other words, people would get to the last level, wait a few weeks, and there would be more new levels. And then it dawns on me. There's no point to this game. It's like Tetris A mode. I think any kind of long obedience in the same direction can feel this way. We wonder, is there a point? But in the Christian story, we know that Revelation 19.9 is true. The end is this gigantic party where we party like it's, interesting enough, 1999. And all throughout Scripture, God leaves us little breadcrumbs like this miracle reminding us of how it's going to be. This is what we're living and dying for. So if this is the why of the miracle, I'd like to, again, return to the question of the how. Truth is, I don't like the demythologized reading of this story. I don't like the sharing version of the miracle, but I have to admit it has a kind of power. And that is this. As I'm reminded by Jesus how it's going to be, I realize that the one thing for sure is that there will be enough bread for everyone. And the question remains, who will be there to enjoy it? And I think the answer is that it will be filled with those who have learned how to share in God's kingdom by practicing that now. Uh, as I mentioned, this is the first Sunday. And so we're now going to take communion together. I would usually talk about intinction, but we have the residue of the pandemic and sort of this plastic approach to communion, but it is what it is. We'll do it together with glad and sincere hearts. So uh, Jameson and the band will come up and, and play our communion song. And if you're a visitor, any of those moments over the next couple, you're invited to come gather the elements, take them back to your place, 
and take them on your own time. Before I do that, though, let's read the words of institution together. Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed unto you, the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Amen.